good evening and uh, welcome to uh, worship with the Templar Knight, Knight Templar. Anyway, uh, this is the second part of the relevance of the Bible. Again, uh, taking uh, information from H.H. Rowley, the relevance of the Bible. Um, yesterday, we in our part one of our short series we're going to have here, uh, we discussed... Uh, a bit about how there is kind of a contradiction in the Bible, uh, Old Testament, and and it came to the conclusion that man is at fault. God gives man, men have written the Bible. So God gives man a revelation, and it's how they interpret it, or how the, the uh, people who write the Bible, uh, such as... Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, see it, and, and this is the New Testament, the Old Testament, uh, the days when the elders wrote the Bible, and how they see it at, at their time. So they are they're imagining. It's it's not really an imagination. It's what they see. It's it's kind of an imagination, I guess, in a way, um, what they see at that time, and how they perceive it, and how they perceive the revelation from God. God can only do so much. So it's the um, I hate to say it, but it's the intelligence of the person who interprets the revelation from God. Um, but, and on that aspect of it, we also uh, said that the Bible is a religious book. It's a religious book. And we also know that it's the most sought-after book in the world, the most sold, and it has the most languages of any other book in the world. And then today we're going to go on to part two of our Revelance of the Bible, and this is going to be, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the prophets of the Old Testament. So we'll start off with that. Um, people who style themselves uh, students of prophecy are usually persuaded that prophecy is thoroughly relevant to our modern world. They regard prophecy not as a enunciation of the enduring spiritual principles, but as a ignited enigmatic presentation of the things that are happening in our own day and that they may be expected to happen tomorrow. They are skilled in finding the, uh, in the prophets cryptic references to the things that have just happened, regardless of the fact that the same verse have been taken with equal confidence by their predecessors in other ages to refer to events that happened in their day. When they venture into the future, they are invariably uh, falsified by the event. They believe that the divine origin of the prophecies is proved by the exactness of the accord with the events which they themselves read into them, regardless of the fact that so inexact is the accord that quite other events have uh, been read into them in other ages. And uh, even by contemporary rival schools of prophetic interpretation adopting the same fundamental principles. If some specimen of prehistoric art were hailed as providing an exact likeness of Oliver Cromwell and uh, equally an exact likeness of Napoleon, and again, an exact likeness of uh, Mussolini, we should doubt the exactness of likeness of any. And any student 
of the history of interpretation of prophecy along these lines is likely to doubt the exactness of the accord that is uh, so triumphantly announced by all. He will also observe that in so far as an accord alleged, it is as it must in the nature of the case be only after the event that it can be discovered. On this view of prophecy, it is not the unfolding of the nature and will of God. It is not even the unfolding of history. It is rather the concealing of history, and it demonstrates not the divine ability to reveal the distant future, but complete inability to reveal it uh, identifiably. In such study, there is nothing that honors God and nothing that is truly spiritual. There is a study of the prophets, however, which involves a truer recognition of their uniqueness and their spirit, and which uh, is relevant to uh, our own generation in bringing out prophecy, a uh, spiritual word of God, into our hearts. Too often, those who have reacted against the misinterpretation of prophecy above referred to have preferred either to ignore the prophets, save for a very few passages, or to read them in a detached way that a historical document is really revealing to us the social and religious conditions in ancient Israel and the ideas of religious condition in ancient Israel and the ideas of these prophetic thinkers as to their reform. This is almost a grossly to this is this is almost as grossly to mistake their significance and pitifully to miss the rich treasures the prophetic books contain. It is not to be not denied that the prophetic books are not easy to understand. They consist so largely of brief oracles put together on no very clear principles of the arrangement with sudden trans transitions from one oracle to another, and usually with the but and usually with but the scantest of evidence of the situation that gave them birth. Clearly, it is impossible here to attempt anything like a general interpretation of prophecy. It is desired rather to indicate the nature of the prophecy and its meaning for us. To do this, it is necessary briefly to review its origins and development, not as a historical study for its own sake, but to see what were the broad principles, what were the broad principles that underlie it. For it is only as we study prophecy in a historical perspective that we can perceive its true genius. The origins of prophecy are exceedingly obscure, but certainly very humble. Recent studies has emphasized the ecstatic element it contained, and an element not only found in its origins, but persisting in no small measure in its development. Under the power of the divine Flatus, when the Spirit of God rushed upon him, the prophet would do the most extraordinary of things. Indeed, prophecy and madness were indistinguishable. And while superstitious, uh, we protect the prophet, he was at the same time held in general contempt. We have the interesting narrative that tells us how on one occasion Saul was infected by a frenzied ardor of a group of prophets uh, to such an extent that he stripped himself and rolled on the ground naked all night 
And therefore men said, is Saul, quote, is Saul also among the prophets, question mark, unquote. Um, and that's in 1 Samuel. When, when David moved the ark into Jerusalem, he leaped and danced before it, exposing his person. He earned the contempt of his wife for thus acting as a prophet, as one of vain fellows, quote, unquote. She puts, uh, puts it, Second uh, Samuel, when Elisha, Elisha sent one of his disciples to anoint Jehu and to summon him to seize the throne, Jehu's companions asked him what this mad fellow came for. Second Kings. So closely, indeed, were prophecies and madness akin that when Saul fits of madness came upon him, and he acted so irresponsibly that he hurled javelins about at anyone who happened to be within sight, we are told that this strange behavior was prophesizing, and it came to pass on the on the morrow that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, and he prophesied in the midst of the house. And Saul had his spear in his hand. And Saul cast the spear for he said, I will smite David even to the wall. Unquote. A prophecy whose point could not be mistaken. So, too, when David fled from Saul's presence, the king of Gath, and found his life in danger, he saved himself by feigning madness. Make sense? He scrabbled on the doors of the gate and let his spittle fall down on his beard. The point that was that madness and prophetic, prophetic ecstasy were so indistinguishable that no one would dare to injure him, lest perchance he were acting under divine influence. That uh, an element of... Uh, eccentricity uh, continued even the greater prophets needs little reminders when isaiah wished to represent to the people their folly and trusting in egypt he gave vigor to his warning by walking the streets of jerusalem naked and barefoot it's in isaiah he thus declared that the egyptians should be powerless to protect even themselves but should be carried to adorn the triumphal procession of the Assyrian monarch naked and barefoot. As we know from surviving examples of Assyrian art captives were accustomed to be humiliated. Uh, similarly, Jeremiah, perhaps the greatest of the prophets, gave point to his warning that it was useless to fight against Babylon by symbolically wearing a wooden yoke upon his neck. Just as uh, Zedekiah and the son of Chinana had earlier made himself iron horns to symbolize his prediction, First Kings. Uh, Ezekiel uh, frequently performed symbolic actions or of more elaborate eccentricity. Nor was, uh, nor was such a prophecy confined to Israel in the time of Ahab when we find prophets of Tyrian Baal among the Israelites who danced about in their frenzy and gashed themselves with knives. Though they seem to have been themselves Israelites, they suffice to show that the prophecy was known, an unknown feature of their religion's life 
of the neighboring peoples. And this we learn from independent sources. Uh, to name but one, the Egyptian story of when Amun presents his testimony to the earlier practice of prophecy in Syria. In Asia Minor, too, the phenomenon um, is found in uh, their uh, culture. Will locate its origin, a suggestion developed by T.H. Robinson in his conjecture that prophecy arose amongst the Hittites, since theirs is the only influence which ever controlled Asia Minor and Syria, and practically nothing else. Uh, eccentricity was not the only element of prophecy, however, nor was it ever eccentricity. Uh, for its own sake, but always direct to some definite end. Primarily, of course, the prophet was an enthusiast for the God whose inspiration he received. The prophets of uh, Terran Baal, or Baal, in Elijah's day, worked themselves into a frenzy in Baal's interest, which the prophets of Israel, a few years later, expressed their passionate zeal for their God by inciting Jehu to seize the throne and by assisting him in, to carry through his most bloody revolution. A further outstanding feature of the earlier prophets was this their intense patriotism. They were passionate lovers of their country and hated every foreign oppressor with all their soul. They came forward to use all the power of religion to kindle the spirit of their fellows to rise and smite the oppressor. Thus Deborah, a prophetess, stirred uh, Barak to take the lead uh, and rouse Israel to freedom and herself accompanied him to kindle in the hearts of his fellow his followers the fierce flame of passion with the burning words of hatred she hailed the overthrow of the oppressor and gloated over the bitter pain the proud mother of Sisera experienced when her son returned not home judges uh, to the book of judges in the time of Saul, it was the Philistines who were the oppressors, and the prophets were therefore bitterly anti-Philistine. When Samuel parted, the, parted from Saul after their first meeting, he told him he, would, he should meet a company of prophets. Quote, After thou shalt come to, to the hill of God, where it is the garrison, or as some would render, the moment of the Philistines. For Samuel. It is not without significance that it was uh, in that spot that Saul met the prophets and caught their frenzy. In the time of Ahab and his immediate successors was Armenians or Arameans of Damascus who were the oppressors. Again and again they attacked the Israelites and annexed large districts of northern Israel and territory of Jordan, treating the people with cruelty that was still a vivid memory in the time of Amos in the middle of the following century. Hence, the prophets were ever ready to rouse the spirits of Israel against these northern foes. An unnamed prophet encouraged Ahab to resist Ben-Hadad, and when the Armeni, Arameon came again to attack Israel in the vain confidence that a battle 
in the plains would be more successful than an attack on the, the hill fortress of Samaria. Another prophet came forth to assure the king of victory. When Ahab and Jehoshaphat went up to the fatal, to the fatal field, a, a rom of Gil, Gilad, no less than 400 prophets were found to offer them false assurances of victory, and it was made clear that they prophesied not in the name of Baal, but in the name of the God of Israel. In the days of Jehoram, when the Arameans besieged Samaria and the king uh, was reduced to the point of surrender, it was Elisha who still maintained the moral of the suffering populace. Although, therefore, in this age, Elijah and Elisha were in violent conflict with the cult of Tirunbal, which was then war with foreign foes. Oh, I'm, let me back up. I lost my note. We're in violent conflict with flourishing in Israel when it came to a question of war with foreign foes. The prophets of Jehovah, including Elisha, were ready to throw their weight into the national scale. But if Hebrew prophecy had been nothing more than this, it would not have been deserved. Would not have deserved our attention today. Happily, it was more, for no movement should be judged by its whence, but by its whither. And if the Hebrew prophecies had beginnings of little promise, it's uh, it achieved heights of rarest value in the spiritual progress of mankind. Nor and even the origins of Hebrew prophecy, exhausted in this element of frenzied piety and patriotism, the waters of more than one stream flowed into the river of Hebrew prophecy. There is an important note in First Samuel that, quote, he that is now called a prophet was... Uh, before time called a seer. Unquote. The meaning of this verse is not very clear, but it seems to point to the merging of two originally distinct classes, and it is of no little significance that this note appears in the record about Samuel. For while Samuel was, in the earliest narrative, a seer, a seer we find in him some of the outstanding marks of the Nabi, which would be the prophet, and uh, it was doubtless under the influence of his powerful personality and example that the two classes drew together and became known by a common name. In that early narrative, we find Samuel at Ramah, a man uh, of some importance in the town, but with a purely local reputation. When Saul is unable to find his father's asses, it occurs to his servant that Samuel might be able to give some information. The only difficulty is the fee, which he would naturally expect, but which Saul is unable at the moment to provide. Fortunately, the servant has sixpence, which is sufficient for the purpose. Speculation has been indulged in as the method by which the seer gained such knowledge, and he has been likened. Improbably, I think, uh, to Babylonian and other magicians that certain magical ideas are to be found 
amongst the prophets may. Uh, prophets may uh, indeed be, be fairly inferred uh, from such a narrative as the account of Elisha's death, where the prophet places his hands on the king's hand and shoots from his bow and then makes the king strike the ground with his arrows where uh, potency is held to lie in the act itself. But that has no relevance to the character of, of the seer or the method of his enlightenment. Neither the story of Samuel nor that of Elijah of Shiloh, to whom the wife of Jeroboam came to inquire if her son should recover, gives us any light on that method. But however he gained his knowledge, the seer was a man whose vision would could penetrate beyond the confines of, of ordinary human perception, and he brought into the stream of prophecy a contribution that was of the uh, profoundest importance. The earlier prophet, or the static prophet, is commonly met with in groups, and where group psychology would operate to help to generate the frenzy of frequently we read of companies of prophets. The Roe, which is the seer, was apparently an individual figure who was available for consultation on private and personal matters. And through a common term, prophet is generally used after the time of Samuel. The two terms seem to have continued, and that would be the Nabi and the Roe. The individual prophet was frequently attached to a sanctuary where he stood alongside the priest as a member of the personal of the personnel of the shrine. The larger sanctuaries may have had more than one person who were available for consultation. The priest was the repository of tradition and usage. The ministry of the prophet was a different kind. To the priest were entrusted certain legal functions, and if anyone wished to sacrifice, he alone knew the precise technique the case required. In cases of sickness or need, if the one went to the shrine to recite prayers or incantations, um, he would uh, be the person to know the appropriate ones. He was also the guardian of the sacred oracle, the Ipod, or Urim, and uh, Thummimim, which was consulted by the mechanical means. But for private inquiries as to where lost asses were, or whether a sick child would recover, it was more usual to, res to uh, resort to the prophet of the shrine. It is possible that the prophet received the message through some form of trance, and there were, and there are some uh, who hold that all prophets of the Old Testament received their messages in that way, this way. So there is no certain evidence um, on this point, but in any case, it is probable that the prophet received his message through the organ of his personality. It took form in his mind. This would seem to be the characteristic of the prophet of this type, whether attached to a sanctuary or not. For many individual prophets in Israel were clearly not attached to shrines, and many did not wait to be consulted by those who wanted guidance, but were as active and full of 
initiative as those early groups of the prophets who kindled a door for the nation and its God. What is of importance to remember is that there were several varieties of prophets in Israel and that the form and that from the time of Samuel, the lines between them cannot be hardly drawn. And Samuel stands almost at the beginning of the Old Testament account of the prophets. If the early ecstatic Nabi or prophet brought in the element of the Ardur and the faith of patriotism, the Roa brought in the element of illumination. Yet, another element entered into it, or even more significance from the beginning, there was in Hebrew prophecy a moral element which gave it its unique character. It is not equally conspicuous in all prophets of the Old Testament indeed, but it was those prophets who manifested, who most manifested this element, who were most truly and most essentially Hebrew prophets. There are passages in which Moses is referred to as a prophet. In one sense, of course, it is not true. But in another, it is most profoundly true. Moses was not an ecstatic zealot of, or a man to be consulted about lost property, but a great leader who took a company of serfs and made them a nation. More than that, it was Moses who gave Israel the rich moral element, which was the distinctive thing about the religion, and who thus contributed to the stream of the prophecy, its most uh, distinctive feature. I'm not thinking merely of the Decalogue, though. I find no reason to deny that the ethical Decalogue of Exod came to Israel through Moses, but I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of something more primary. Uh, in Exodus, and uh, quote, if we read, um, And God spake unto Moses and said, I am Jeho Jehovah, and I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob as El Shaddai, but my name Jehovah, I was not known unto them. Moses came to the, to the people in Egypt, than with a new divine name. It was commonly supposed that Jehovah was originally the god of the Canaanite clan, with uh, which Moses had taken refuge. But whether so or not, one day there, there would be, one day there burned into Moses, burned in Moses, uh, Moses's heart, the certainty of Jehovah, would, uh, through him, deliver his people from their Egyptian bondage. And he went down to Egypt and told them that this God, whose very name was the name, was a new and strange to them, but had chosen them to be his people and would deliver them from their bondage. In his name, Moses led the people out of Egypt to Horeb, the sacred mount, where Jehovah's chief seat was. And here the people entered into solemn covenant with Jehovah. And all this was something new and unique in the history of religion. 
Jehovah had first adopted and delivered Israel. And now, in her gratitude, Israel adopted Jehovah as a national god. The worship of Jehovah and Israel began. Then, as an act of moral choice and had its roots in its essentially ethical emotion of gratitude, it is true that Israel passed through a long period when every man did that which was right in his own eyes. But Moses had planted in the covenant relation an ethical seed, which was destined to bear rich fruit, fruit and which bore its noblest fruit in the work of the great prophets. Who said uh, that ethical note was not struck by every prophet. Nevertheless, it was very frequently struck, even in earlier days, of what uh, great significance was Nathan's rebuke of David and his adultery and for his infamous treatment of the most faithful servant. The uh, courage of the man who dared to challenge his monarch with, Thou art the man. Quote unquote, Second uh, Samuel was a good arguery for the future of prophecy. Even more courageous was Elijah's rebuke of Ahab for the way he secured possessions of Naboth's vineyard. First Kings. The covenant that was ethically grounded in gratitude was already bearing ethical fruit and bringing into Hebrew prophecy, its unique note. So, so far, we have not mentioned prediction as, as a feature of prophecy. An older generation um, obsessed with the Greek's derivation of the word uh, found in prediction of the principles um, element of prophecy, more recent writers finding no suggestion of prediction in the derivation, derivation of the Hebrew Navi have insisted that a prophet was not a foreteller, but a foreteller. There are two instructive verses in Exodus where the word Navi occurs. When Moses was seeking to evade the call of God, during the greatness of the responsibility laid upon him, God said unto him, quote, Is there not Aaron, thy brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. He shall be thy nabi unto the people, and it shall come to pass that he shall be to thee a mouth, and thou shalt be to him as God. Exodus, he shall be thy nabi or prophet. Or version renders a spokesman in Exodus. Um, the same word is translated prophet, where the meaning is clearly the same. See, I made thee a god in Pharaoh, and Aaron thy brother shall be thy prophet. From these passages, it would appear that uh, the prophet was regarded as the mouthpiece of God. So look back at what we were talking about in, in our first part one. You can see, uh, you, can, you can start to distinguish, and you can start to see where we're going with this. And whenever Hebrew prophecy was true to its genius, it was the mouthpiece of God. The prophet spoke God's message to the men 
of his own day and generation. Its significant content was not the distant future, but the principles that God would have them live by. Sometimes the prophet penetrated deeply into the heart of God and brought out some new truth concerning God himself. Sometimes he addressed himself to the evils of his day and the generation and summoned men in the name of God to sweep away all unrighteousness and injust, injustice for their, from their midst. So that they're talking about attacking other, other people and cleaning up the mess, cleaning sin away. But with all this, there is a predictive element which is not to be ignored. Look where you will in the prophets and you will find prediction. For prediction was the very real function of the prophets. Do we have prophets today? That's a quick question. Have we seen any or heard any? There are people out there claiming to be prophets? I don't know. Um, for prediction was a very real function of the prophets. It may not appear in the derivation of Nabi, but the etymology is very incomplete guide uh, to the meaning of the words. For the words have history as well as a source. No one would think of determining the connotation of the word priest solely by its derivation from the Greek uh, Presbuteros or elder, um, as little can be connotation of Nabi, he found solely in its source, for we have already seen that the seer was merged with the Nabi in the Nabi. The prediction was regarded as a vital element of the word of the prophet, may be seen at once from a passage in Deuteronomy where it is laid down that the criterion by which a true prophet may be distinguished from the false prophet is the success and failure of his prediction. Um, quote, When a prophet speaketh in the name of the Lord, if the thing follow not nor come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord hath not spoken. The prophet hath spoken and presumptuously thou shalt not be afraid of him. All right. Uh, fundamentally, the prophet was the man of clear vision who looked on the events of and social conditions of his own of his own day with more penetration eye than his fellows. When Elisha was at uh, Dothan, the Syrians sent to capture him. The prophet's servant was alarmed to find the city surrounded by Elisha and was calm and confident and quietly said. They that be for us are more than that they that be with them. He then prayed, Lord, open thou eyes that he may see. And he saw the mountain full of horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. Second Kings. This is but a typical picture. The prophet The prophet was the man of open eye. He looked on uh, any given situation and he saw it, saw it all. He saw through, through it to the end. He read the inevitable issues of things and proclaimed it to be no uncertain voice. Um, with no uncertain voice, he proclaimed it. 
uh, when he saw his fellows plunging headlong in course of sin and selfishness, he saw that the inevitable disasters to which the course must lead. When others lived in the comforts of the present, he declared that the sorrows that were being laid up, he did predict, but whether the events he predicted were in near or distant future, they, are, they were related to the conditions of his own day and the generations. It was never a prediction for its own sake or to impress uh, succeeding generations with this inspired cleverness, but whatever with an immediate and practical objective to persuade men to turn from their follies to God in the hope that they may avert the evils he saw coming. That's a genius Hebrew prophecy. To say, hey, you continue down this path, this is what's going to happen. So look away from it actually kind of ingenious and and true but if you think of everything that's in the bible you know it, it's true they tell you i mean we tell you you got the ten commandments there you go the prophet looked through the, the present to the end towards which it was tending he was essentially a seer a man who penetrated human affairs and human situations and who laid bare their inevitable issues. But all the prophets were not equally penetrating in their vision, and there was real progress from age to age, for there is a human element as well as a divine element in prophecy. Its richness depends not alone on God's willingness to give, but on the prophet's capacity to receive. Thus, when Jew had carried through his orgy of bloodshed, uh, we read that God praised him for it. He had acted under prophetic incitement in his murderous zeal and the zeal at Rechabitz had assisted him in his massacre. And then he, we read, quote, the Lord said unto Jehu, because thou hast done well in executing that which is right, mine eyes, and has done unto the house of Ahab according to all that was in mine heart. Thy sons of fourth of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. <coughs> Excuse me. But a century later, when Hosea's first child was born, we read that uh, the Lord said unto him, Call his name Jezreel. For yet a little while, and I uh, will avenge the blood of Jezreel upon the house of Jehu. Clearly, in Hosea's view, Jehu's assassination of massacres, uh, so far from being according to all that was in God's heart, were strongly displeasing to him, since there were now, they were now to be punished. This does not mean that God had advanced somewhat and no longer took delight in the acts that he had been rewarding for a century, but it does mean that his prophets had advanced and now saw more clearly into his heart. So was it with patriotism? We, uh, we have to said that patriotism was one of the distinctive marks of the early Nabi. Uh, continued so throughout, but there was uh, considerable 
considerable advance in the understanding of the true nature of patriotism, and it was in connection that uh, the distinction between true and false prophets first appeared. The earlier prophets were ever ready to kindle the... Uh, they were continue... Uh, sorry. They were ever ready to kindle the warlike zeal of their contemporaries against the, their enemies. In the later times, there were still prophets who did the same, but they are known as false prophets. While the true prophets opposed these things, the false prophets doubtless thought they were the true successors of Samuel and Elijah and Elisha. For, just as they stirred up men to fight against the Philistines and the Amorians, so were the false prophets ready to support every war against foreign oppressors, whether Armenian, Assyrian, or Babylonian. But just as Samuel and Elijah and Elisha had penetrated to the needs of their own day, so the true prophets were their real successors in the penetrating to the differing uh, needs of their own. And in perceiving that a crude conservatism was insufficient to meet the changing demands of the new age. They realized that patriotism does not consist merely in hating the foreigner and desiring to see one's own country powerful and wealthy. They recognized that what mattered was not the wealth and the power of the state, but its spiritual and moral worth. They believed that the power of God was great enough to rescue Israel from the hand of all their impressors. If only Israel would cultivate into her life those qualities which were the dearest to the heart of God himself. This was the altogether deeper patriotism, the desire to see their country not so much great as good, and the conviction that unless it were good, it could not become truly great. So, false prophets and true prophets alike prophesied in the name of God and felt themselves to be his servants. But whereas the false prophets were ever concerned to prophecy smooth things, the things that men wanted to hear, the others were often constrained to say things that were highly unpopular. The false prophets reserved all their condemnations for the foreign foes of Israel while the true prophets, through displaying no gentleness to the cruelties and wickedness of the foreign peoples, were more especially interested in attacking the things that marred the life of their own people. The false prophets were ever ready to go with the stream, while the true prophets again and again stood against it. It was not that they loved opposition. It was far from it. The loneliness of their position oft times rent their heart, but they felt an inner constraint that could not resist. <coughs> Excuse me. They were prophets because they had to be, uh, because the hand of the Lord was laid upon them. 
The lion hath roared, who will not fear? Question. The Lord God hath spoken, who can but prophesy? When I say I will speak no more in his name than there is in my heart, and is it were a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am worn out with the strain and unable to control it. Jeremiah, Amos. The distinction between the true and false prophets first appears in Micah. First King, um, it's Micaiah. First King, when Ahab and Jehoshaphat were thinking of going up to recapture Rome of Gilad, Gilead, no less than 400 prophets of Jehovah encouraged them to, to their adventure. It was in the name not of Baal, but of Jehovah. And they spoke promising the two kings' victory, the Makiah, I guess that's how you spell it, M-I-C-A-I-H, uh, was brought in and to answer Jehovah's Fats request. He already had the reputation of being somewhat of a pessimist who always prophesied evil and who was always found on the unpopular side. And he lived up to it, uh, his, his own reputation. Makiah true forerunner of great host, found a prison as the reward of his faithfulness. That his word was justified by the event mattered little. That was doubtless only the aggravation of his offense. Whoso would be honored of men, let him not be the prophet of God, unless it be a false Throughout large parts of the Old Testament, we find a comfortable doctrine that happiness and prosperity are the inevitable reward of faithfulness to God, that God is kind to them, that love and serve him indeed is true, but that his kindness shows itself material comforts and worldly honors is believed by the whole course of the prophetic history, um, which the prophets received ought, uh, but the scorn and contempt of men, which of them found ought but persecution and suffering and agony and of the loneliness that was far more bitter than the pain of the blows laid upon them of the suffering of prison of the prison. Yet piety not on the prophets and their suffering, envy them rather than faithfulness on which God could so count. But we must turn to the other side of the prophetic uh, progress. The earlier prophets not merely took a deep interest in the public and national affairs, they took a decisive hand in them as well. It was due to Samuel and Saul. Uh, was uh, set on the throne. And when Samuel had broken with Saul, the prophet looked out, looked out David to succeed him on the throne. When David was about to die, his eldest surviving son, Andonijah, somewhat naturally thought he would have the succession to the throne. It was the prophet Nathan who frustrated his ambitions and set Solomon on the throne. But Solomon, oppressive ruler, oppressive uh, rule, and heavy ex exactions had alienated men's hearts from him. The prophet Ahiah, 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 stirred up uh, Jehoroboam, to uh, head a rebellion and seize the throne. For the moment it failed, and Jeroboam 
was forced to flee Egypt. But when the strong hand of Solomon was removed, the revolution was accomplished and Israel was divided into two separate states. Again, when Rehoboam proposed they marched northwards towards to the conquest of the northern tribes, it was another prophet, Shemeha, who paralyzed his actions by forbidding him in the name of the Lord. Elisha sent one of his disciples to summon Jehu to rebel against his master and seize the throne. The earlier prophets were thus constantly engaging in plots and interfering with the course of government. The later prophets, however, were men of a different stamp. They took uh, a deep and vital interest in the public affairs and were discussing national policies and advocating public action, but they relied on the power of their word alone. They did not supplement it with plots and incitements and revolution and murder. They strove to influence the court either directly or through the medium of the public opinion, but they did not plot against the throne, for they did not feel it being necessary to do so. So strongly convinced were they that the national sin must entail its own penalties and that they felt it was a superfluous to do more. A false national policy could only lead to an ill end and involve the nation in deeper misfortunes than any the prophet could desire. But while every prophet was primarily the mouthpiece of God to his own generation and related his message to the affairs of his own day, there was always a timeless element in the message of the great prophets. They were not mere political and social reformers, but men who penetrated some of the secrets of God's heart, laid them bare for all succeeding generations. They did not see the whole of God's heart indeed, and none of them had a perfect view of him. But each of them enshrined some fresh understanding of God and a new emphasis of divine truth. And what is equally vital is the emphasis of divine truth and what is equally vital is the distinctive message of each prophet is always based on his own experience and is always intimately related to his view of God. The greatest example, of course, is Hosea. The prophet learned from his own tragic experience the depth of God's love. Though his own wife was unfaithful to him and utterly unworthy of the love he gave her, yet did he love her still? And from the agony of his personal experience, he learned to know what the love of God was like. If a human love could thus survive the bitter wounds of that faithful, faithlessness inflicted, how much more must the love of God, who chose Israel in her weakness and bondage and made her his bride, survive the cruel faithful faithlessness of Israel? Though Israel was perverse and worthless, yet would he continue to love her until he won her? For his love was unconquerable. How shall I give these up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver thee, Israel? Mine heart is turned within me. 
my compassions are kindled together. I will not return to destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man. But the love of God is not mere weak sentimentally, as Jeremiah later saw, and as Amos had earlier perceived. It was the sterner side of God that Amos saw. His soul was aflamed at the injustice, and he saw the rampant on every side in the northern kingdom, and the luxury of the upper classes and the relentless oppression of the poor, and he cried aloud against it. If God was God, he must be God of righteousness, and Amos propounds that, and propounds the great and eternal principle that a great heritage brings a great responsibility. Quote, you only have I known of all families of the earth, therefore I will visit upon you all your inequities. Excuse me. Of what profound significance is the word to us who rejoice in the greatness of the heritage that is ours begone the spirit of an empty pride. Rather, let our hearts tremble even as they rejoice and realize the weight of our responsibility. In the work of such men, the ethical seed that Moses had planted produced its noble and rich fruit. For while they unfolded, with every growing clearness, the character of God, they were not concerned with an abstract theology. Back at uh, of all their distinctive emphasis with two great principles common to them, all principles which are still valid for us. They are that whatever God is, we must be like him. If he is righteous, we must be righteous. If he is holy, we must be holy too. If he is gracious, then we must be gracious. If we are truly reference a God of this character, then must we build up in our lives those rich ethical qualities which belong to the essence of his heart? And unless we do thus, strive to be like him, we do not truly worship him. All of our outward forms of worship are an offense to him, unless, we, unless behind them is the truer and deeper worship of obedience and that the deeper worship is not to be found in the ritual of cultists. Again and again, the prophets denounced the cultists of their day. I dislike and I despise your feast. I will take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Yeah, though ye offer me your burnt offerings and your meal offerings, I will not accept them. Unquote. Amos uh, Quote, for I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Quote, Hosea, uh, will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams of the ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgressions and the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has showed thee, O man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee but do not justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God, unquote. Um, it is sometimes maintained that the prophets posed the ritual in itself and demanded its complete abolishment. And to the view I, uh, I formally subscribe, certain, certain it is that uh, they realize that no mere opus operatum um, could achieve anything and that itself it was not infrequent apparel, but 
I think the alternative view is more probable in that the, with the possible exception of Jeremiah, they would not have denied that the ritual had value, but only when it when it was the organ of the worship of the life and not when it was the substitute for that worship. <coughs> Excuse me. When God was outwardly honored with a stately ritual by men who rejected from their hearts all those high qualities which inhere to God himself, their ritual was an offense to him and a fundamental dishonor of his name. Since it was merely a hollow pretense of honor, certainly the exclusive demand of the prophets is for obedience to the will of God. And the culminating word of prophecy in Jeremiah's promise to God, rich in immediate fellowship, whereby that shall we that will shall be known in its all in its fullness. Um, I will quote, I will put into my law in their inward parts and in their hearts will I write it. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. Unquote. It will, I think, uh, be perceived that in all this great and enduring principle are to be found principles that are far transcend the occasion that called them forth and that air are as relevant in the modern and our modern world as they were in the world of Israel. Today, as the then men are called to profoundly spiritual worship of God that expresses itself in every relationship of life, today, as then, all the offenses to God in our life, whether as individuals or as nations, is a curse to ourselves. This does not mean that true religion consists in social reform and the, the uh, amelioration of the conditions of life in the pursuit of economic comfort, peace, and prosperity. It means that religion must be the spring of all true social service and that its inspiration must be the vision of the heart of God and the realization that man is a child of God. Its purpose must not be to lift man to ease and comfort but to lift him to God. And unless it does not lift him to God, it will merely defeat itself. There are so many things that are happening in this world today that you can, you can relate to that real easily, um, especially that places that call them non-profit. I'm just going to say it. People that call themselves non-profit organizations but yet pay a CEO uh, Millions of dollars, is, is that for God? Again, got to ask yourself that question. Um, we have heard much of, we have heard much of denunciation uh, of false gods of race and blood in our day, but comfort is more widely worshipped through uh, less vicious false gods. And in the years uh, preceding the war, the, the peoples of many lands worship the idol of peace. For when men desire peace, but not the things that make for peace, peace but not the righteousness, which is its, uh, its only basis, peace but not the will of God, in which alone is peace. 
they merely worship an idol. The prophets of Israel speak to our day and minister to our need when they teach that only a disaster can come upon men when they do not build their life on the will of God. There was a, a Chinese, uh, the 12th century, a Chinese interpreter of Confucianism whose profound influence of the orthodox schools of interpretation had lasted, has lasted from his day to ours. He tells us, uh, when in my teens, I was overjoyed to read in Mencius that the sages were of the same flesh and blood as ourselves for thought I. If that be the case, then I too can be a sage. Now, however, I find it hard at heart, our study of the Hebrew prophets reveals to us that they too were men of the same flesh and blood as ourselves and encouraging us the thought that in our day men may be as they. Every generation needs a prophet, the man who can expound God's message in terms of its life and necessities. Um, it is not alone that the ability to understand and expound in the prophets of Israel that we need, but the mantle of their spirit to bring the creative word of God to our age. The wild fringy of the early Nabi uh, may be dispensed with. But at least there must be an absorbing passion in the service of God, nor is it a, is it, is a uh, true and enlightened patriotism through which we may best serve the wilder internationals causes the claims our service to be despised. Uh, beyond a living interest in the affairs of our day, we need penetrating vision, the power to look through the present to the end to which is it's tending. We need willingness to be lonely and misunderstood amongst men and courage to speak God's message as his mouthpiece. And I have to say, that's got to be everybody uh, to speak the word of God, to spread the word of God. So as his mouthpiece, even to those who reject his word. So we tell everybody, we should be doing that. And all this is but the beginning of our need. From whence uh, did the prophets get their inspiration? Well, there was a speaker out there a while back that... Uh, they found their inspiration in nature. He argued that it was in the solitude of the wilderness that Moses heard the call to go down to Egypt and that uh, Deutero Isaiah again and again appeals to nature. Lift up your eyes on high and see who hath created these that bringeth out of their host by number. He might be, he might with equal Irrelevance had remembered that Jesus went out alone to the mountaintop to pray. But Jesus did not go out to pray to nature or to commune with her. Nor was it nature that spake to Moses to message of redemption and set her seal on the burning sympathy of his heart. Nor did nature give to Isaiah the content of his message. 
The prophets found in nature the evidence of the power of God, but it was not there they sought the revelation of his character. It is not seldom suggested that they got their inspiration by brooding on the ills of society, by studying the international situation and such like activities. Uh, they would have scorned such caricatures of themselves, and for it was uh, ever from their experience of God that they found their inspiration. They behold him in the immediacy of reached experience, and with eyes that were opened by the vision, uh, they looked out onto the world. And when men, they spoke primarily about him and called men to be like him. God was the fount of their experience, and he the center of their theme. And in every generation, he whom God can use as his prophet must know a like profound experience. The prophets were chosen by God. Their ministry was not one to which they aspired, but one from which they could not escape. Yet the choice of God was not arbitrary. The issue showed the wisdom of the choice. For the prophets found the call of God inescapable, only because they were fitted to be used by him. He chose those who respond to his choice and lays his constraint upon those who are sensitive to his touch. They heard the call of, with the mingled trembling and the elation filled with the wonder of the greatness of their high calling and filled with trembling at the thought of their unworthiness for such a ministry. Who am I, cried Moses, that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? The deliverance of those on whose suffering he had so long brooded seemed too high of a mission for him. Woe is me, for I am undone, cried Isaiah, because I am the man, I am a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. For so great an honor, which filled him with unspeakable elation, elation, he was all unworthy, and this consciousness filled him with trembling. Yet, when he heard the voice saying, Who shall I send, and who will go for us? He responded with humble consecration, Here I am, send me. That humble consecration varying in his expression and the different prophets marked them all. For the prophets were supremely teachable. And only humility is teachable and consecration alone can open the door of the heart to God. The prophets were not creators. They were but clay in the hand of the potter, but clay that yielded itself into his hand. They were not perfect, and we are not perfect, but we may find encouragement. The potter could take them with all their imperfection and fashion them to a vessel fitted to his use. Nevertheless, the potter was limited by the material he had to work with. This is ever so. All our limitations and our limitations upon God and in impoverishment, not alone of ourselves, but the world that God would serve through us. But what of Christ? Is he not the fulfillment of prophecy, and in him is not prophecy superseded? 
It is true that many words of the prophets find their deepest fulfillment in him, nor is this surprising, uh, for it has been said that the utterance were based on their penetration glimpses into the heart of God, and Christ is the effulgence of the divine glory himself, the perfect manifestation of God's heart. Perfect. Little wonder, then, uh, that the prophetic uh, utterances should find their perfect settings in him, and that he alone should reveal the depth of the fulfillment of the meaning that was in them, transcending far the thought of the prophets who uttered them. Where, then, is the need for the penetration of God's heart? <clears throat> if such penetration must lie behind all prophetic ministry, what room is there now for such ministry? Can we hope to progress beyond the revelation that, that is in Christ? I say no. No, indeed. But who has exhausted all the fulfillments of the revelations? There are treasures in it that none has yet explored. And then, though the intimacy in our, of our experiences of God, we learn new things. Yeah. There are only uh, things that are, our blindness has prevented are seen long since in Christ. We cannot progress beyond him, nor can we apprehend all that is in him. At most, we can perceive one or two aspects of the heart that was perfectly unveiled in him. But that is so largely veiled from us by our own limitations and make them the basis of the living message, which is essentially God's message through us and which is vitally related to the needs of our own day. Well, that, we come to an end uh, of part two. Tomorrow we'll uh, start part three, same time, 8 p.m. Central Time, USA. Um, tomorrow we'll talk about the unity of the Bible. Remember, this is all relevance of the Bible. And I hope you enjoyed, you're enjoying this uh, little bits we're doing here, the relevance of the Bible. Let's uh, call it a day, and uh, tomorrow night I'll be back on. If uh, and you know, I'm always I'm plugging this again. We're always uh, with the Templar Knight Order, and if you care to learn more about Templar Knights, uh, you can go to our website. That's www.americanightstemplars.com. Uh, if you have any prayer requests, I'm more than happy to do uh, prayer requests as well on this program. Um, and you can email me those at davidr258 at comcast.net. Or you can go to our website, again, www.americanightstemplars.com. And uh, you can contact us, too. There is a spot there that you can uh, send a request in. But let's, uh, let's uh, say a little prayer. I'll call it the everyday prayer. <clears throat> Bow your heads, please. Lord, as I go about today's ordinary duties and routines, may I be aware of you. 
There isn't the slightest shadow of darkness in you, O Lord. You are completely pure and right. So may my life reflect more and more what you are like and the way I really live. Give me eyes to notice you in everything. The vastness of your creation, the beauty of a shiny leaf. May I be sensitive to the subtle delights of the life around me and a smile of a wave of a listening ear. I know I fail so often, but I thank you again that I may know the fresh assurance of blood of the Christ cleansing me from every wrong. Thank you, Jesus, for being my Savior and Lord. Help me somehow with your strength, Lord, to rise above the frustrations and inconveniences that I know I will experience daily. Save me from being dulled by the repetitiveness of life. May I respond to the rich texture of life of the community where I live and where I enjoy my fellow man. May I appreciate the wide diversity of cultures around me. May my life have integrity, that consistency and wholeness between what I say, I believe, and how I actually live and practice. May I live in your reality today. Lord, I don't simply want to survive today just to get through it. Your word promises life in all its fullness. May I welcome each new moment with expectant and obedient delight to be ready to serve you and others. May I know that today, as I find even deeper meaning, purpose, and values, as I seek you and find you fresh, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, thank you for joining me. And uh, I'll be back on here again tomorrow evening for part three of Revelance of the Bible. May God continue to hold you in his arms and bless you.